Welcome to uh, Boethius Book Conversation. Tonight is Dashiell Hammett's The Glass Key. And uh, our presenter is uh, Dr. Thomas Fleming. We all know, uh, did his studies in film noir. <laughs> and uh, I'll turn it over to Tom. Well, I'm glad to see uh, we have a nice turnout of faithful people, although be nicer to have a few more. The, um, I'm going to try to structure the discussion tonight more in terms of a Q&A and dialogue. This is not just because I'm just back from Rome and haven't really <laughs> prepared anything, but actually I, I've been think, thinking about this book uh, for a long time. I, I've uh, read it a number of times, but uh, sometimes it's better to let the conversation flow, and I don't so much impose on it. Uh, I don't know how much uh, Dashiell Hammett people have read in the past. Is this your first Dashiell Hammett book? or Hammett was, of course, basically invented the tough guy American detective novel. Previously, detective fiction had been um, the, even American writers wrote in the genteel English fashion, you know, the locked, the locked door mystery, and nice people in a country house, a, a strange murder, you know, Sir Roger Ackroyd is found dead, and, and, and the brilliant detective has to go through a series of improbable maneuvers to try to find out who killed him. The tough guy novel, of course, uh, evolves... Uh, quite different uh, as uh, a series of uh, uh, it starts out you know in there, there are these uh, magazines cheap cheap magazines that would sell uh, tough stories and Hammett was writing for them and it uh, it was sort of drugstore bus station fiction before it was not uh, taken seriously Many people say, uh, and I don't think it's true, that the, the, the 20th century prose style of Hemingway was really invented by Dashiell Hammett. You know, the, the terse, clipped prose, the tight-lipped, the, the giveaway nothing but, but what's in the, in, the, in the bare dialogue. In fact, it's interesting that uh, Hemingway's short novel, The Sun Also Rises, and uh, and this and uh, and uh, Red Harvest, the first Hammett novel, which comes out of uh, some short stories he'd written, we're we're talking about evolving at about the same time. I don't think either had read the other. I think it was just a kind of natural evolution. Hammett uh, was an interesting person. He himself was a tough guy. He had uh, you know he had uh, I don't know how if you looked up his life, but. He had uh, at one point. He had at one point gone in, uh, to work for the uh, Pinkerton Detective Agency, and he had been involved in a lot of different work. You know, the Pinkertons didn't do things typically things like divorce cases and the usual small-time stuff. They were usually involved in protecting large business interests. You, you, you may know how that the uh, Pinkertons were hired to get, uh, to get the James brothers 
and how they threw an explosive device into the James brothers' mother's house, killing his mentally def- their mentally defective stepbrother and blowing uh, uh, Zerelda James's arm off. I mean, they didn't have a really good reputation. Uh, the Pinkertons were tough, direct, operated outside the law often, and they were hired. Uh, they were hired in, uh, by by large companies during uh, labor unrest. So Hammett, I believe, had worked uh, during the Great Anaconda Strike, uh, and so some of his early short stories uh, uh, were. He creates a, char- a character he calls the Continental Op. That is, he's an operative for the Continental Detective Agency. And these stories are largely grow out of his really his real, true, everyday experience as a picketed man. And uh, the Continental Op is fat and not very attractive, but he is tough and ruthless. As uh, as Hammer went on, you know, he was a uh, he was. Uh, in the war, I think he was in both wars, if I remember correctly, and he was a patriotic American, but he also, he became more or less a Marxist, and uh, there are questions, why did, why did Hammett uh, turn to the left? First of all, everybody turned to the left in the 20s and 30s, I mean, the entire American literary establishment were hoping for a communist revolution. <laughs> but also, some people think that it was his experiences as a Pinkerton man Beating, beating up striking miners uh, and repressing the labor movement by any means possible that perhaps he felt bad about it. But his, his novel, uh, Red Harvest, uh, it has uh, covers a lot of that uh, material and it is, is really sort of cobbled together to some extent from, uh, from the earlier stories. Okay, so enough, enough on Hammond. He, his most, two most famous books are obviously The Maltese Falcon, made into, I think, three films, at least four films. The most memorably, the, a brilliant movie by uh, John Huston, starring uh, Humphrey Bogart and uh, Peter Lorre and, and Sidney Greenstreet. And uh, The Thin Man, a light-hearted sort of comic drama, which was also not only made into one movie, with uh, William Powell and Myrna Loy, uh, among the most charming movies ever made, but then that generated a series of movies in which the hero, Nick Charles, evolves from being the ch- a gambler and the child of Greek immigrants, you know, sort of low-class character, into being the son of a New England patrician doctor family. It's, it's very funny when you watch it because they just have it's too gritty uh, for Hollywood. I have to say that uh, I must have been a whole generation of men who grew up wanting to be William Powell, because at least you could then win Myrtle Lloyd. But um, <laughs> the, uh, the 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 most the most weird novel is the Dane Curse, I think, and we won't won't talk about that. But we get to uh, the Glass Key, which was Hammett's favorite novel of the ones he had written. By no means the most. It, by no means the most popular novel. It, it has never won the kind of uh, favor that either the Maltese Falcon or uh, the Thin Man did. I think the thing that Hammett most liked about the Glass Key, there are two things. One, he constructed a rather perfect plot. 
you know, it's 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 neatly done. And he says he planted enough clues for the reader that you should see it coming before it happens. He wanted intelligent readers to figure out that it's the senator, you know, who, who is responsible for the killing of his own son. But secondly, uh, it is uh, there's very little romance in it. There's rom- there's a lot of romance in the Thin Man. And certainly a lot of romance, you know, in uh, in the Maltese Falcon. By romance, I don't mean love material. I mean, you know, stuff that could never happen in a million years. You know, uh, sort of fantastic adventure, fascinating characters. Whereas uh, the Glass Key is very uh, straightforward, down to earth. It's about a corrupt political machine in a New York town. I guess it's Albany. I don't know, uh, but it could be any any uh, any town from Chicago, you know, from Chicago to Boston, really. But it's uh, uh, and the characters in it are 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 none of them is larger than life. There's no Sam Spade. There's no Mr. Gutman. There's no. There's no fantastically uh, wonderful person or evil person. It's all pretty much gritty everyday life in a corrupt American city, much like the America that we know. It's. It could just as well be Rahm Emanuel's Chicago, except Paul Madvig has a has a decency and sense of honor uh, that that uh, that uh, Rahm Emanuel. Uh, would never dream of, of having. Um, let me ask a question. Why did I pick this book? <coughs> My wife doesn't know. Are you having no. A, no. No. Does anybody have an idea why I would pick this book? Yes? All right. Because I'm the dictator. That's, yes, right. Right. Yes, That's a good answer. Yes, good. That's why you chose it. No, you gave me one answer once. That if we went back to the first book we read, Homer's uh, Odyssey, we were still faced with a sense of loyalty and, and uh, you know, support. So that uh, Beaumont supports Paul, though eventually finds he's making something in the way of decisions, and in the way that, you know, Odysseus supports his people, and Achilles, well, Achilles is more of a, a problem here because he did walk away. Yes, but we didn't read the Iliad, so that's not... No, right. so we're not worried about that. But, uh, well, let's talk but about a his, sense yeah. of honor. Yeah, let's talk about this just a second. There, there is a heroic code in the Iliad and the Odyssey. There are things a man's supposed to do. Right. And there's a code of the warrior, the way he's supposed to live, and especially if he's a good warrior, he's supposed to fight among the foremost on behalf of his people, and that's why he uh, uh, is given all the privileges he has. Here we have, it's it's not exactly a Homeric world of what, what, what Homer would recall, regard as honor, although remember Odysseus was a pirate and a thief so in that sense he's not that much different from an American politician 
But uh, in both sections, we're dealing with rough, violent men. But men who don't live without a code. And in the case of, uh, of Ned, our hero, he, we have reason, he's a, as uh, the blonde menace, as the senator's daughter called, uh, she says, well, you're a gentleman. And he says, you mean I know what, what jacket to wear with what tie? And, and she obviously means a lot more than that. She doesn't mean just that he has decent manners, but that he treats people with courtesy and discretion in a way that only a gentleman knows how to treat people. So we, so we have this, this, I think we have a tie-in in the tough guy novel, and in, by the way, the Western novel also, uh, that's emerging in the late 19th century, about rough warriors who nonetheless live according to a rule. And one of the rules is that you back your friends, you back, the, you back your leader. There's a great section, I don't think I can quote it perfectly, in the Maltese Falcon, where uh, Sam Spade says something to the effect that, uh, well, Miles may not have been a very good man, but when a man's partner is killed, a man's supposed to do something about it. In other words, he didn't like his partner, Miles Archer. He seems to have been carrying on with his wife, Iva. There's every, there's, it's, but, but, uh, he's his partner. And when you have a partner, you have to, you have to treat him in a certain way as a friend. There are other books that I think. What? What? Is there any tie-in with the uh, with the warden, for example? Well, in the warden, yes. No, you go ahead. No. <coughs> I was going to say, Ned Beaumont has his own sense of honor, and the warden. Once it was brought up as a question, did he actually? honestly deserve this position and the income. Thought it through and said, well, no, maybe not. Maybe it belongs to someone else. And Ned is thinking, well, I've given good advice. It's not followed. And some awful things are going to follow. And now he has to break with Paul. So he also has to make a decision to leave. It's also, you know, the, the the crisis in the warden is that the liberal, the young the the young liberal yeah. gentleman John Bold, believes that there are more important things than loyalty and friendship, and he's willing to ruin the lives of the man who has been his friend and mentor and has has done everything for him, and the man's daughter whom he wants to marry. But he has these lofty principles of uh, that that of. Uh, liberal equality and democracy and all of that stuff, which takes precedence. Well, you know what uh, Ned Beaumont, at the heart of a political machine, <laughs> what he thinks about honesty and democracy and fairness, <clears throat> he has nothing but contempt for all of this, but he does have what John Bold lacks, and that is right. he has loyalty to the man who picked him up out of the gutter. Right. Because as he says specifically... You know, why is he loyal to Paul? Well, Ned, Ned Ned's, a, Ned's a gambler, a plunger, and a, and a heavy drinker. Clearly, <coughs> they don't talk about it, <coughs> it's but uh, it's, it's past just this one illusion and uh, that he's um, he was saved by Paul, 
and he will save him. The, the movie glosses over that yeah. quite yes, a bit. Yeah. He, just, he says, when he's asked why he's loyal, he just says, because he's a square guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Little switch. Shaky Irish fingers. Now, the most interesting comparison, though, I think, to the books we've read, is the uh, Measure for Measure. In Measure for Measure, uh, the Duke um, steps, you know, steps down from his position of power, pretends to have disappeared, takes on the uh, the identity of a of a priest, and stage manages the action. And this is one of the most interesting aspects of the Glass Key is that Ned Beaumont, nobody knows what he's doing. Nobody knows what side he's on. He pretends to break with Paul and makes makes an alliance with the enemy gang leader. But it's a fraudulent alliance because he's simply trying to find a way of saving his friend. At what point do you think Ned uh, has decided that he will play any game in order to save his friend and leader? At what point in the, in the story? When he takes a beating. Yeah. What about, my view is, and I came to this reading it for the, I don't know, third time for this discussion. I think that when he finds the body of the senator's son, that he says, look, the, where the body is found, Paul has been hanging out with the senator and his daughter. Uh, obviously, there's a lot at stake here. The election is coming up. I think at that point, Ned... Um, in a you know in a in a flash because he's he's portrayed as brilliant being able to intuit and anticipate long range plans he's going to whatever game has to be played to save Paul he's going to play it at that point and he plays it by ear of course in, I think engineering a quarrel with uh, with Paul w one thing happens after another but I think much as um, much as the Duke, you know, is 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 trying to stage manage things from from behind scenes, I think Ned is basically dri driving the plot, driving people into doing things, and nobody, not the district attorney, not the senator's daughter, not Paul himself, nobody seems to realize that he that what what he's doing, that he's he's uh, he's in fact pushing the action forward. Now, I could be overstating this. You know, it, it could be, you know, that he is as, uh, that when he goes to New York, for example, when he's trying to leave, that this is legitimate, he's genuinely fed up. But my conclusion is, uh, after, after thinking about a lot, no, I, I think he has decided he will do whatever is necessary to save uh, the man he would rescue. <clears throat> but in the conversations he was having with Paul, 
I, and I can't tell you specifically yeah. because I read it too much. Of it. I think he was trying to he was trying to make sure that that Paul was not the killer. I think yes, he was, right. He was testing Paul. Oh, absolutely. Like he wasn't exactly a hundred percent sure that Paul might not have done it, uh, and he just wanted to. It was almost like Al Pacino in The Godfather uh, asking questions of um, his his sister's killer. What's the, um, you know. Like, he knew he had to ask the question like who who did you call was it was it Barzini or the or Tatali? Yes, that's right. And the he, husband. Yes, he, he yes. did. His father would have never done that. No, and he would have been sure that it was. But but Al Pacino as a as a new as a new Don just right. had to be sure. And I think Ned was trying to make sure that he was right yeah. about his intuition. But okay, here's a question. Let's suppose you figured out that Paul had done the killing. Would he have backed out and no longer supported it? No. See, I don't believe that. I mean, no. to in order to in order to save him, he does have to know the truth. He has to know what 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 game he can play. Right. What game he can play. So, um, so there are a number of reasons why I picked the book. Partly just because capriciously, I liked right. it, and partly because somebody who is not here said, "Why can't we do Dashiell Hammett or Raymond Chandler?" Why can't we do a book where there are movie tie-ins? And I th near the end of this discussion, we'll talk about the three movies that are uh, that have uh, some relationship to to this book. But there are, but there are this this basic basic issue about what a man has to be, what a man has to be loyal to. Yes. Um, I read it in the past month three times, perhaps looking for more depth than it was there. But uh, I'm puzzled still by the choice of the title, and when we find out why that the blonde menace tells him first the story of her dream, and she has this happy ending that the snakes got out of the room, they went in, and they had all the good food, and everything was fine. And then later, she says. Well, let's tell. No. Let's 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 tell the, the first. Tell the substance of the dream, and then we'll comment. On okay, uh, they're driving along or whatever, and they both had dreams. And his dream was that he'd caught a big trout. She grabbed it and threw it back. She said, "My dream was we were walking through the woods, and we saw a little cabin, and we peered through the windows." And we were starved, and it was a table full of good food and drink. It's a Hansel and Gretel story. A Hansel and Gretel story at this point. And, um, and so she gets the idea that, as so many people do, they hide keys. So she looked under a mat or a bush, gets out this glass key, turns the key, opens the door, and they see the floor swarming with snakes, and they're all coming. And she said, then we get on the roof, we slam the door and lock it, she says this specifically. We get on the roof and you have some means by hook or whatever, you open the door, the snakes all come out, we wait till they're gone and we go in and we still get the good things. Later she said, no, the key was made of glass that smashed so we couldn't lock the we couldn't get in there, and we could not stop the snakes. 
So hence the uh, the uh, the let, 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 let's 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 start with uh, Ned's dream. Mm-hmm. He catches a big, glorious, beautiful trout. Now I don't know any fisherman here. It's the happiest day of your life right. when you catch a big, a big fat trout. And so then, what can you say about somebody who would grab it and throw it and throw it back? Oh yeah, this person's a spoil sport. <laughs> this person is ruining. Your happiness, that you, you have this one thing. What is it? She, what is her name, anyway? Um, uh, the senator's daughter. Mm. Funny how we don't. Anyway, yes. <laughs> we, uh, what is it she has? What is Janet. it? Hmm? Janet. Janet. What is it he, what is it Ned thinks she has done that would justify this kind of in, dream? Right. Well, she's ruining Paul's life. Right. Paul is the biggest thing in Ned's life. He's the man who saved him. He's loyal. He's built a he's built a career. Everything, obviously. Well, maybe not obviously, but 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 his Paul his friendship with Paul is the child. Right. And she, by she and her father, by cynically luring Paul on. They need his help because he's uh, because Paul is the number one political fixer in the city, and if the senator is going to get reelected, he needs this crook, and so to to get the crook on board, of course, the suggestion is Paul is going to marry the daughter, and of course the daughter has no uh, interest in this. You remember near the end of the book, she says, "You don't like my father, do you? Why not?" That he said, I don't like pimps. Meaning, obviously, that this is a man who is willing either to sell his daughter in a, in a loveless marriage, or even just use her as a dinner party hostess and as a date for Paul. But he, but the senator is 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 incredibly corrupt in being willing to use his, his own child this way. And she's have she has not she loathes Paul because he's a low class person and she has illusions about her father being a man of honor. So we got Ned's dream out of the way. The first dream that she tells with the phony ending, okay, it's, it's Hansel and Gretel, they're at this house, they're gonna, everything is gonna be happy. There's a she sees this wonderful future lying before her with you know plenty. And then these awful snakes come in, and so she is not able to get it. But then there's a method. You could save yourself. There's a crisis. The snakes are obviously, you know, a lot of things. But you know, the 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 uh, the death of her brother, the the election, all of these different things. And yet you can you can be rescued from the consequences of the of these crises and misfortunes that you've got yourself involved in. So what so in the real dream though, not the lying dream, in the real dream, the key breaks in the locks, it's a glass key. What does that mean? Well, it means, among other things, you can't escape from the consequences. You know, she, you know, they, she thinks she had thought, and that's why she would seem to have told this story. 
she had thought that, you know, uh, everything can be hunky-dory again. You know, it's like Scarlett O'Hara, I'll think about it tomorrow, I won't think about it today. You can all, every, everything can go back. She's been used to bedazzle this crook, and now her brother's dead, and her father's in trouble, but we can all just, you know, put it, put it back together. It's like, uh, to, to, to refer to a novel I referred to uh, earlier, written at exactly the same time. Well, as, as, as Hammett's first novel, and that is uh, Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, at the very end of the novel, which is very, which is eerily, uh, this, this, the glass key seems to capture some of this quality. At the end of The Sun Also Rises, Jake Barnes and Brett, the impotent Jake Barnes and Brett Ashley, who are meant to be lovers but obviously can't be, are in a taxi. And the taxi, you know, it's a horse-drawn taxi. The taxi stops at a stoplight or whatever, and they're thrown together, sort of in intimacy. And Brett says to him, Lady Brett says to him, Jake, we could have been so good together. And then you see Hemingway describing everything happening outside the window. The light changes, or the cop gives the signal. And as the carriage starts up, they're thrown apart again. And Jake comments, yes, isn't it pretty to think so? Isn't it pretty to think that World War I, being wounded, being made impudent, hanging out with a bunch of drunks all the time, you know, root, spoiling life, that you can get over that and this romance is going gonna, is gonna to solve it? Well, that had been her view, it would seem. And we're told it can't. The door, the door is not going to open again. Now, interestingly about this door, at the very end of the novel, on the very, the very last paragraph, the very last thing, you know, uh, Paul has come in, there's been words and everything, Paul leaves, and there is Ned and the blonde menace. And uh, they're they're going to go off together to New York. By the way, very immoral ending for uh, obviously. Who are they going to get married? Uh, is there a priest present to accompany them on this trip? Um, and all it says is, you know, Ned stared at the at the at the closed door. No, no closing door. door. It was open. It was open. Open door. Open. Okay. Right. Ned stared at the open door. So the, 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 the whole image now, you know, is, you know, of, of the door. And, of course, the door is now open. Why? Because, see, there is a possibility that these two people could lead an actual life together. So, everybody satisfied with this <laughs> hermeneutic of uh, you're never satisfied. <laughs> In reading it, one thing I was struck with, all I could think of was our current campaign, political campaign in this country, and all the shenanigans that go on. Well, that's yeah. quite a Rorschach test into you. Is it? It's true. I mean, you know, Ned is always thinking, wait, 
if I say this, remember he rips up the will of the guy who commits suicide, say, you, you call our people here, there, and everywhere, and make sure that this intestate thing goes to a friendly judge. And, you know, he's always trying to angle for Paul. And, all right, so I was thinking Hillary Clinton. But nonetheless, but that's not the You're being very Mm -hmm. unfair to Ned and Paul. You're right, I have. We're dealing with a big city machine (coughs) politics Mm -hmm. the first third, first first half of the 20th century, where uh, with, you know, Mayor Curley in Boston, the the last of these great machines was the Daily Machine in Chicago under the, the senior Mayor Daly. We're dealing with people who everything was based on corruption and intimidation, and yet, and yet, these corrupt political machines were dealing with multi-ethnic societies with all with incredible problems, and there was no positive. There was no clean, simple way of dealing with them. Reform politics, as as preached by the Republican Party at the time, simply meant. Immigrants shouldn't be involved. Keep the dagos out. Keep the mix out. Don't let them get involved in the political process. It's sort of like the senator in The Godfather. You know, I I may have to work with you people, but I despise you. He says mm-hmm. to to Michael Corleone, and that's essentially the, what what the reform movement <clears throat> is. And it's an attempt to keep power in the hands of a traditional elite class. Whereas, which was completely unresponsive to the, to the practical needs of a, of a large city, which needed the trash picked up, the streets kept clean, the streets police. Uh, this is something uh, the Daily Machine did in Chicago, and by the way, uh, Richard Daly Sr. didn't make a lot of money out of it, because power is more fun than money. And, and, and across the board, the very, uh, and, and these, these political machines were in bed with gangsters, with, you know, not just mafia hoodlums, but with Irish mobs. But it is the way cities were governed, and governed fairly successfully compared to today. Could you imagine if you had the old daily machine running Chicago today? Do you think you'd have flash mobs running down the street, pushing old ladies into the street? You know, you think you'd have... Uh, uh, Black Lives Matter demonstrations, not allowing people <laughs> to, to shop on uh, Christmas shopping on Michigan Avenue. Daly would have had his goons in there beating the stuffing out of them. So um, it is it is it is an interesting portrayal of a completely corrupt political system, which actually functions. We have a completely corrupt political system, which doesn't function, does not satisfy the needs of the the the, 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 the police are corrupt and violent, don't protect us, and yet and if they lift a finger to protect the normal people, then they end up being prosecuted. I think I told some of you about being invited down to talk with uh, with uh, Officer Darren Wilson, who was the guy who uh, was in, shot. The gentle giant in uh, in Ferguson, and I, you know, I spent an afternoon talking with him about his experiences, and he says, you know, the truth is, life cannot will never be the same for the cops. That yes, they're corrupt cops, they're bad cops, but now a policeman cannot do his duty 
in protecting himself and the public without being hung out to dry by, by the political establishment, responding to people like the Reverend Al Sharpton. So, uh, really, I'm sure Hammett thought he was writing both in Red Harvest, where he talks about uh, the, the, the copper strike, but both in Red Harvest and in, uh, and in the Glass Key, talking about an incredibly corrupt capitalist society that the, the, the senator is the face of it, dignified, apparently noble, honorable, educated, but the underbelly is Paul Madvig and the gangs. The trouble with this is, yes, it's all true, that is the way it functioned, but unlike our society, it actually functioned. Do people like the book? That's a big question. Who liked the book? I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was a little complex, you know, in a good way. Yes, yeah. I complex, agree. which was yeah, refreshing. A little convoluted. I like the 1930s lingo and yeah. slang. Yeah. kind of cool. I'll I'll read any book in which a guy says, hey, "Are you packing a Roscoe?" <laughs> <laughs> I I, find, I thought it was a page turner. I mean, I yeah. I'm to keep yeah. reading. Yes, it was well written that way. Hammett has a prose style which is very hard to imitate. A million people have tried to. I mean, he, he, as he created, in a way, in, in this genre. At least he took uh, cheap police reporting, criminal crime, crime fiction techniques, and, uh, like, the, you know, from the Police Gazette, etc., and he turned it into literature. Chandler made it much more beautiful and much more deep and much more emotionally compelling. But Chandler knew that he would never have written had it not been for, uh, for Hammett. Right? Of course, Chandler was more educated. You know, he, he learned Greek and Latin going to school in England. And there's, there's, so, there's, there's so much more in him. But I'm not sure Chandler ever wrote a book as successful as, uh, as Hammett's best, best three books. Um, the this becomes the like the, archi- the, 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 the Hammett novels become like what America means to the rest of the world, and so it it develops into the tough guy novel, the tough guy movie, the whole film noir genre of, in which uh, uh, tough but but uh, tough but resolute type lift people are pushed into a corner and have to fight their way out and uh, it's it's a it's 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 a formative fictional development I think for the way Americans saw themselves you know Americans saw themselves as Sam Spade and Ned Beaumont that is people who when tough times came they didn't they didn't call the police they took uh, they, they, they they handled Cells. And of course, you may remember Andrew Jackson's mother about, uh, you know, you, you go to the law for certain things, but when it's a question of your personal honor or your family reputation, you settle them things yourself. Namely, you kill the person who has offended you. Well, is the tough guy the, uh, the development of the cowboy? Uh... I, I, I think there's a lot in that, and in, in that, of course, of course, 
uh, Western fiction is developing almost at the same time, you know. But uh, Zane Grey had already, you know, was already, uh, you know, halfway through his career then. And Owen Wister's great character, the Virginian, uh, that had that that was written about 1900, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, before that, you know, the the Bret Hart stories way back in the 1870s and 80s. Uh, and I, I, I think a lot, a lot of, I'm not saying it's true, but a lot of the way we Americans have seen ourselves through fiction is as these tough, resolute, independent people who don't really need the political system or the law. We're, we're like, we see ourselves as a kind of latter-day Beowulf, you know, where we, we, we handle things ourselves. Shall we take a break now and then uh, get, yes. get refreshment and then uh, we'll talk a little bit about a few other things and uh, and a little bit about the movies. Before going on to talk about uh, movies and what they re- might reflect on our knowledge of uh, of this book, are there any questions? I know Mark Kennedy did not like the Yes, Mark. Um, Tell us about these clues that he supposedly yes, right. Larded in the book. Yes, well. <laughs> yes. Well, there's the missing hat. Yes. The missing hat. We the got. missing hat and the stick are a big, uh, a big thing. If you fi- if you, if you fig, if you write, if you figured on the hat, you had to understand. Well, if it's not Paul, there's only one other person who is. Uh, and the, the fact that the hat ends up back in the senator's wardrobe is a is a, kind of yeah is a and big the key. stick and the stick which Paul declared to to uh, Ned that he had burnt yeah yeah so that obviously wasn't true the um I'd, uh, I I since I don't I think Hammett just made this as a throwaway remark but I think he did uh, constructed. This way, and of course, Hammett must have read a lot of uh, of conventional mystery novels because if you're in the racket, you 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 read it. One of the things I've found, I've spent about five years reading a lot of mystery novels of every type, uh, mostly you know the the uh, in the English type. And the one thing you learn is you you don't learn how to figure out a real mystery in the real world, but you can spot. You can spot where things are going, not not so much in an Agatha Christie novel because I think she cheats all, all the time, but in the in the so-called golden age of the twenties and thirties, uh, you can uh, I think uh, you 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 learn how to figure in your antennae are are out already. I think Hammett knew that he didn't. I don't think he liked much of that kind of fiction. Both he and Chandler uh, thought English mystery fiction was sort of Precious and fruity and silly. Interestingly, uh, Chandler, you know, wrote uh, wrote a wrote a famous essay on the art of mystery writing, and he particularly hated John Dixon Carr, and he hated the guy who wrote the Philo Vance stories. And uh, but it's, he, uh, he says one thing. My 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 favorite mis- English mystery novelist after uh, after Sherlock Holmes, an actual contemporary of Holmes, of uh, Conan Doyle. Is Richard Austin Freeman, uh, who is a doctor, and there's a lot of forensic pathology in in these novels, and he's a 
And uh, and Chandler says in this essay, no, in a letter, he says, "Don't whatever you do, don't sell Austin Freeman short." You know that he knows he knows how to tell a story and how to construct it. What I and this is a digression, but what I really like about Austin Freeman, like it's one of his earliest novels, The Red Thumbprint. Uh, it is the first major piece of mystery fiction to deal with fingerprints. But Austin Freeman deals with it in a way that says, well, the fingerprint shows that a very nice, decent young man has committed a murder against a benefactor of his for material reasons. And uh, the, 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 the forensic pathologist, Dr. Thorndike, refuses to believe it on the basis it's just he says, all the material evidence says one thing, but the man's character says something else. And so he then begins to test hypotheses in a rational way and shows how you, and figures out how you could uh, concoct a phony fingerprint, except it would be, the scale is just like one fiftieth off. But so it, it is, uh, that, but, that, but that's a, that's a Austin Freeman's characters and, and novels are, are unusual in being uh, realistic and humane. Most of this stuff is very artificial. But the point about this book, Dashiell Hammett, is that you were making that we, is, yeah. is obvious. It's not just the mystery story. No. It's talking about you know human virtues and, and human interactions, and that's really the theme, right? Yeah. So, and on that note, is it is it fair to ask the question? So. I mean, Shakespeare did the same thing, so is, uh, is Dashiell Hammett on, on, on par with Shakespeare? No. Uh, and, and why, so, it, it, it is, it, is it a character, is, is Dashiell Hammett's literary style, his, the style that he uses, or is, is, uh, is you know, his, his ability to write, is it, where does it, it stand on that, on that continuum? Yeah, you know, writing? Obviously, he's not trying to write uh, great literature. He's trying to write a competently crafted story in which he can be, he can be in a in a fairly hard boiled way. He can be honest and direct about what life is like. It has it obviously has it has connections with the great lit, uh, great traditional literature with traditional novels and with with drama, but he is also aiming at finding an audience. That ranges that that's more not simply people who can read Shakespeare and Milton, <clears throat> but people who are going on a long bus trip and, and want something to occupy their time. Uh, the one thing, a question that interests me, and if we ever do any more uh, detective fiction, <clears throat> like Chandler or, or some of the others, one of the subjects that interests me is why is detective fiction so popular? I mean, it really is invented uh, in the 19th century, does not really begin to come into its own until Wilkie Collins' The Moonstone, which is actually a pretty darn good novel. And, uh, and there's a reason why, Sherlock, why Conan Doyle is famous, because those Sherlock Holmes stories really are a breakthrough the te the professional consulting detective the you know all of these all of these uh, stereotypical bits that you get in in most detective fiction that follows it's uh, 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 Conan Doyle creates it but why why is this stuff take off the way it does and endures for example the the, the Western novel 
has had a trajectory from from uh, Bret Hart and Owen Wister, then to, you know Luke Short and Louis L'Amour, and now it's it never rose much out of junk, beyond junk, and now it's basically junk. Most of these genres uh, became junk again, but there are still uh, people making huge amounts of money out of middle-brow detective fiction, mostly women. P.D. James, Ruth Rendell. Uh, by the way, I can't stand Ruth Rendell. I read one, one and a half books and said that, 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 that's enough. But what is it? What is it about detective fiction? Both the English style of the, the, the let's find what the mystery is, and the more hard-boiled style, hard style of Hammett and Chandler and Ross MacDonald and all their imitators. What is it, what is it that is so compelling? And my, one answer I have is, well, what is the first great piece of detective literature it's not, and it's not Edgar Allan Poe, it's not Wilkie Collins, it's Sophocles Oedipus. There's a mystery, there's a murder. The detective, the king, has to find out who the murderer is because this murder affects society. And unfortunately, he finds out it's himself. And in finding out it's himself, he finds out a lot about the nature of human life. Now, there's, Aristotle thought there was no better book, no better play ever written. And I think he's right, no better play could be written. So, what, what, what is there in the Oedipus and in the Sherlock Holmes stories and in all of these things? Why do so many otherwise intelligent people get drawn to it? And I think Aristotle has the answer in the first sentence of the metaphysics. Man by nature, men by, human beings by nature, strive, I believe he uses the word oregontai, strive. To know, part of the part of being human is to want to figure things out. Oedipus figured out the riddle of the Sphinx, which is how he became king of Thebes. And solving mysteries, figuring out what really, because you know, you go through life. There are all these things that happen, and you never really know what's underneath it. We'll never know who killed killed John Kennedy. We'll never know who killed Ron Brown. Uh, and, but we, we want to understand because it's only by, fi you find out the facts, but then you find out the motives and you, 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 you peel this onion of knowledge. And I think that's, uh, that's the essence. And even though this is a tough guy novel, it's a, it's a hard-boiled novel, we don't find out who's guilty until, you know, 90% of the way through. And, uh, and in finding out, who's, finding out who's the guilty party in the glass key, we're finding out things about human society as viewed by Dashiell Hammett. It's not a gangster. It's not a love crime. It's an ambitious, ruthless American senator who partly by accident kills his own son, but is willing to, to let everything happen to his family and to, his, to everybody so long as it doesn't damage his re-election chance. So when Ned Beaumont finds out who the killer is, he has also found out about what 
America as a country is, at least according to the way Dashiell Hammett thinks. This is very satisfying. Now, how many, I don't know, how, how many people have, how many people have read more than three detective novels in their life, you know? Uh, the thing is, you can get addicted and all you want to do is it's just the cheap thrill of, you know, the, for example, I loathe Agatha Christie. I just, I find her, I can't read her. I'm going to give her another chance. But um, the really, the best writers have uh, of mystery, you know, not just Hammett, but Chandler and Josephine Tay, who writes, I think, very um, sort of serious, those are, those Josephine Tay novels are serious novels. I want to ask Dr. Patrick, who has, of course, attended so many of our events, and I said, Jim, do you, you read any detective fiction? He said, well, Josephine Tay. And he's absolutely, she, goes, she writes real books. But her real books is rarely, there, there is, she does have a, uh, a professional detective in, I think, uh, three of them. But even he, he is part of the plot. His, his emotional, in one, in one of them, he's lying wounded in a, in a bed recovering. And somebody gives him uh, a book about Richard III, and he says, I don't believe any of this. I don't believe that Richard III killed the children of the tower. And see, as a, as a policeman, I find this incredible. So he, but he has to do his research lying in bed, recovering from a near-fatal shooting. And so people keep on bringing him books about Shakespeare, about Sir Thomas More's life of Richard III. And the book's called The Daughter of Time. The Daughter of Time. And uh, it's a magnificent novel where all the detection is from, from, a, from a sick man's bed reading books. Uh, but, but, but Tay, in this book, in, in The Glass Key, it's important that Ned is not a detective. He plays detective. And of course, he gets a, he, because it's a corrupt political system, he, uh, Paul uh, gets him to be appointed a special investigator by the, uh, by the yeah. uh, state's right. attorney, by the yeah. pro uh, now, district attorney. What is the significance of that? Is there any significance? He has an in. He has an in, and uh, beyond that, well, you get to know the district attorney who is who is corrupt and cowardly. Yes. When he thinks he can nail Paul, you know, and betray him and join the other side, he starts pushing Ned around. Oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. And then Ned pushes him back. And then he says, uh, and he says, oh, I, I hope you don't think I suspect anything of you or Paul. And, uh, and it, 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 he's, he's immediately intimidated into backing down because he is a weasel, you know. So by uh, by having by having Ned, who knows what his values are and what his loyalties are, and you have him with the <laughs> with the district attorney, who is a jackal. It's a it's a nice contrast. Hammond was a serious communist. No, I don't think he ever joined the party. Uh, he certainly took a sort of Marxian point of view of class struggle. He support. He ended up sort of supporting the labor movement, and and he hung out with Reds. 
I think Lillian Hellman was a red. Uh, his uh, his his uh, longtime girlfriend, mistress, and because um, it was romantic. Yeah, yeah. But also, you know, in World War Two, how I mean, I mean, he he served. You know, he was a, he was in his own way a a patriotic American. But um, here's here's a here's a strange thing. You end up defining yourself by what you're opposed to. So I notice this among a lot of people I, I have met or known moderately well. For example, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, Russell Kirk defined himself as somebody opposed to communism and the destruction of our civilization. Okay. Well, his loyalties, therefore, who, are, who, who, who could he be allied with? Well, he had to be allied with National Review. And National Review were, you know, Red Scare, anti-communist lunatics who want a war with the Ruskies. But so Russell, although I know for a fact, he, and he, he only said it publicly a few times, but he opposed the Vietnam War stupid. But did he ever take a stand against it? No, because he was part of an alliance. And one of the, you know, the items that you had to subscribe to if you're a National Review writer was you have to agree that the struggle with uh, over Vietnam is a struggle for the world. Uh, <coughs> flip over to the other side. Eugene McCarthy, a man a lot like Russell Kirk, talented, educated, illiterate, good pro style, good American, just a decent American. But he was an anti. An, he, he was against imperialism. He didn't think America should ruin itself. No, he's a, he's a child of the old isolationist. And so he became so fixated on that that his loyalty, his, uh, his allies are all on the left. It's all the nation of the New Republic. And so did he ever speak out a, a, about free enterprise and the defense of the family? No, no. Whereas, in fact, on, say, two out of three issues, I think Gene McCarthy and Russell Kirk were very close. So you define yourself in terms of what you mostly hate, then you join an alliance which forces you to give up half of what you believe. And I think this explains the peculiar behavior of a lot of people. What did, um, what did uh, Hammett do jail time for then? He was not a serious communist or in the party. I don't remember. He uh, certainly would not have uh, testified. Uh, what? What? Does anybody remember why? 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 Uh, why Hammett went up? I thought no, it was just a, uh, in the general biography. Yeah. Something about he did his time in that Connecticut facility. Yeah, I, I knew that. that. Maybe kind of a country club, but um, he did. He did some time. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't a few months. Yeah, yeah. But that's all I know. Yeah, that's all I know. And. Um, yeah, he is an animus. He is. He has uh, problems with the upper classes. Yes, he does. He is definitely and six a... pages into the book. He yeah. said, uh, "When you go see those people, you better keep your shirt on. Yeah. They're aristocrats." Yeah. He. Uh, he. He. Again, that's why I said that's how that's how Hammett defined himself in exactly that way. He believes that we don't have an aristocracy. We have a plutocracy in America. They are ruthless and immoral. He had seen this up close in the in the uh, in the in his union busting days, 
and uh, and he concluded that the American plutocracy was wicked, and so he defined himself by what he hated. And did, uh, well, did, did, do you think it, it didn't seem at all, um, didn't make sense to me that he would run off with the senator's daughter at the end? Yes, that seems all make a bit of sense. Well, first of all, we have, she is beautiful and charming. <laughs> well, he, he, although he ridicules her, uh, she is looking for, even, even before she discovers the truth, she has been drawn to him. Uh, the movie, by the way, uh, the movie version is interesting because they make a lot of mistakes in the movie version, but clearly the, the, the director and the writer figured out this is a problem. And so they make it, they make it a kind of, maybe not love, but chemistry at first sight when... They're staring at each other yeah, around the film. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, and you could, one of the problems with Hammond is he never tells you what people are feeling or thinking at the time. He just describes it. We, we, are, we have every reason to believe that she's a fascinating woman. It, it it doesn't seem that Ned has much faith in their future during most of the discussion of their, their going off together. Well, one way to look at it is he's been through a rough time. She's beautiful, and they're not yes. going to be living together for yeah. the next 50 years, I don't think. Yeah. Well, we don't know. We know that the do that, that, that their life has opened up. She is. She has got to get away from this town and her father and everything. Right. And she and she's walking away without anything. She doesn't even take her clothes. She's getting nothing, and I think that's important. She's starting a new life. Ned and and uh, Ned is starting a new life. No more yeah. Paul Madvik. I've discharged my loyalty to him. And of course, this again, this is the American dream. You know that. Uh, you can walk out of one life and step into another. You can, you can, you're, you've got an unhappy marriage. You've embezzled money. Fine, get on a plane to to Los Angeles and start over. I didn't see it that way. No, well, the way what I saw was the sole heir of an estate whose brother, you know, the brother was dead. <laughs> the mother is, is yeah. mother there? I don't you know, uh, and. The the patriarch is going off to jail. Yeah, yeah. So not a bad deal. So she's going to end up with the money. That's what I saw. <laughs> ah, <that's a> <laughs> well, let us just say that you have you have you have seen you have seen Ned Beaumont as you would be. <laughs> yes, well, I, I wouldn't the Rorschach test. Well, you didn't marry a poor girl either. Now that I think of it, I, I did not. If if I were if I were your wife's uh, uh, parents, I'd be starting to get nervous. Well. <laughs> As, as I forget who said it, but uh, anybody who marries for money earns every penny. <laughs> I, I have a question about uh, him going to New York and them being in this bar and the, and the fat, high-voiced guy getting beat up. So it really kind of lost me what, why that happened. You know, why, why did Hammond include that? In the plot, in the plot. Oh, uh, but he doesn't like gay people. Yeah, know. could be. The, um, I think that, uh, in general, let me say, I can't speak to that scene specifically, 
But in general, Hammett's stray scenes usually bring out some facet of the character who's observing it hmm. and, uh, and also, you know, bring out some facet of the society that he's describing. And they may, I'm not saying that they always work. One of the mistakes is to think that not that writers on any level, and I don't care whether it's Sophocles or Shakespeare or Dashiell Hammett, writers often, they, they have slips and loose ends and, and things that maybe uh, they would have eliminated if they had they had a third rewrite. But in general, it seems to me that, that Hammett's stray scenes, usually, now he loves, he loves local color. And it, it, one of the great things in the Thin Man uh, book is all the Nick Charles colorful gangster characters are always coming in and saying, hey, Nick, who's the broad? You know, well, that's my wife. Oh, sure, Nick, I understand. Wink, wink. And uh, it's, it's all, it's charming material. And Hammett, Hammett can write with considerable charm about low-life characters. But beyond that, I, I don't know, but it's something to think about. Mark. It's interesting. He he tells a story without any internal dialogue right. at all. Right. None. Mm -hmm. Right. And when something happens, and you, you you hinted at it a moment ago, it's it it's physical description of the person, their eyes, um, their when they turn their head or something. It's all yeah. Which is which makes you which makes it. Uh, Plot moves along with a plays. A play yeah. is a, has to be driven by dialogue yes, that's and right. other things, not internal monologues. That's right. That's right. I think again, it's a it's a it's a very it's a it's a very American quality, and I think that like foreigners reading American literature, they they read Hammett and they say, yes, that's that's what American literature is like, and I think it takes uh, it takes a lot of discipline and talent and, and, and insight to be able to make the story move by the action and the dialogue without the writer passing judgment and, or having a, even though Ned Beaumont is the focal character and I, I think it was Bob Giracci who said why is he always Ned Beaumont other characters are Paul or Janet or whatever, Ned. but he's always Ned Beaumont. And the answer is because he is the focal point through whom we see the book, but even he, we, we're not privy to his thoughts. We're not privy to his thoughts. And uh, I have to say, I like this a lot because I'm I get tired of novels with interior monologues. I get tired of 100 pages of a Henry James character reflecting on how he's interpreting his fellow travelers in Italy, etc., etc. So I find it a, a, a really uh, a relief. Um, I, I, I would not suggest for a moment that Hammett is a, uh, is a great writer or even a great novelist, but that he has qualities that are uh, uniquely his and that... Uh, that, that have transmitted themselves to a literary tradition. Chandler, you know, picks this up, but Chandler has ideals and nobility. I prefer Chandler, but I could see that uh, Hammett is, 
is pure and clean. There is a, you know, tradition starts. I, 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 there are great works of English literature without a lot of, a lot of personal reflection. Um, I would say Robinson Crusoe is a masterpiece without a lot of interior dialogue. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And I would uh, say uh, Treasure Island. These are all great novels where the, the weight of the story is all on the action rather than on the feelings or uh, perfect, perfect for movies. Yeah. yeah. Well, exactly, because now you can, you can put it all in the character, the face, the action. Um, speaking of movies, I mean, I, it's the, 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 um, out, the, 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 the film with Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake and William Bendix and uh, Brian Donlevy, it's a, it's a good movie, but they really do dumb down the story a great deal, to, to the point that the senator almost disappears as a, as a major character. But the, the acting... Especially, I think uh, Alan Ladd is, is magnificent because he's he's uh, he's he's quiet, he's dapper, he's sly, but there's something really menacing in his eyes. William Bendix, who some of us are old enough to remember as Chester A. Riley in the Life of Riley, the most everybody's the most lovable neighborhood neighbor you could imagine, and he plays this psychotic homosexual sadist in Jeff. In the novel, come on, sweetheart. You know you like it when I'm. There's a there's a scene that they don't put it in the movie, but you know where he says, uh, "Yeah, well, I'll take you up to this little room. This why when I what I'll just knock you against the walls, so and we won't have to waste time with me picking you up." It's <laughs> in the movie. Oh, is it in the movie? Yes, okay, it okay, is. I forgot. Right. Yes, it is. I forgot. <clears throat> and uh, I I've got to say. Uh, I never thought I would uh, would would see William Bendix in, as a convincing uh, thug. Oh, and he strangles Varney. Yeah, yeah. He ends up strangling his boss. Yeah, yeah, right. Because his boss tells him to lay off. Yeah, you know? yeah. So um, the other movie, of course, that uh, the movie that's inspired by uh, the film version of The Glass Key. Kurosawa saw it, and uh, he made uh, Yojimbo, which is, I think, yeah. the, 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 certainly the most entertaining samurai movie ever made. Wasn't there something like a Fistful of Dollars? Yes. yes. Fistful of Dollars is yeah. an imitation of Yojimbo. Yeah. yeah, that's what I thought. So in Yojimbo, of course, what, what Kurosawa takes out of the glass key is very interesting because it's only a minor theme, and that is Ned Beaumont playing both sides against each other, and uh, nobody knows who he is, and that's Yojimbo. And Yojimbo finally, uh, finally, uh, you know, uh, gets everybody dead uh, and cleans up the city, which is being afflicted right. by these gangsters. Uh, when Kurosawa saw uh, Un Puño di Dollari by Sergio Leone, A Fistful of Dollars, he said, yeah, that's a good movie, but too bad it's my movie. <laughs> and he sued. Uh, he sued Sergio Leone, and the judge gave... Kurosawa Asian distribution rights, and he made a lot of money out of it. God bless him. When we were in Rome, our apartment uh, at the end of the Viale Glorioso, we, uh, right at the end of the, where the steps go up to the Janiculate Hill, 
Uh, that was the that was the building in which Leone grew up. So we watched the Italian, the original Italian version, with Italian subtitles, so that we helped us follow the Italian of uh, of Fistful of Dollars. By the way, it's better in Italian, believe me, because the guy who dubs Clint Eastwood actually has a voice that can express something other than stupidity. Well, you were telling Jim, you were the great. Uh, what, what, what was Sergio uh, Leone was talking about uh, Eastwood's acting talents, and he said Eastwood has two looks: yeah. hat on and hat off. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that high note, I think we should conclude and go out to dinner. That's so